As those of you that were in my class when it happened two years ago know that it was a humongous shock. My mother's been ill for seven years and was going through Tipulim at the time and came and it was like there was a window for her to fly out here. My father got very ill. Very suddenly he got delicate rayot, pneumonia, was in hospital for two weeks and very suddenly passed away. My mother then had to fly back to get treatment and she had flown back a day before he passed away. She had to fly back out here. We sat shiver. It was... It was uh, it was chaos, in the words of what we've been doing. Um, and two years on, um, things are, are different. And I, I want to speak about, with your permission, I'd like to speak about my father, but I'm going to do it at the end of the class rather than at the beginning. I want us to go back to what we've been doing, and then we're going to look at something in our class that's going to connect to the words I'm going to speak about my father at the end. Um, but just to say that she was Lilui Nishmat Alexander Ben Elaza. Um, his neshama should have an aliyah, and we still miss him. I'm sure we will always miss him greatly, but I'll speak about him at the end. Okay, so where we finished last time, if you remember, we were speaking about the, uh, all the different various ideas to do with Yaakov in his life, um, and I just want to bring... I, we threw ourselves straight in. We looked at the text. We specifically looked at the idea of Yaakov and the dream. We spoke about the notion of chaos and order already. As I said to you, it's one of the major themes that runs through the whole of Sefer Bereshit, the idea of chaos and order being at the very root of our existence. Meaning if we look, and by the way, it's fascinating because if even I, I've spoken to you many times about this before, but if we look at the whole way in which philosophy, and philosophy often reflects, by the way, the way in which humanity thinks on a more generic scale, but philosophy takes it to a very kind of specific point. But if we look at the how the philosophers saw reality over the generations, very, very often they're moving between notions of order and chaos all the time. And today I would say we're in a more chaotic phase, meaning post-modernity introduces a sense of chaos back in to the order that was created from modernity. Modernity really wanted to order and structure our existence. Post-modernity in some ways wants to break it down. And the danger of post-modernity, which we know, is that when there's too much fragmentation and too much chaos and too too much relativism, um, the world begins to totally decompartmentalize. And the biggest challenge to us as human beings is to be able to maintain a balance between the order and the chaos. In some senses, to have a foot in chaos and to have a foot in order and to be able to know how to maintain that balance. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges as a human being, but generally um, as humanity, to be able to do such a thing. But So this was already we saw, and I said to you, I really believe that Sefer Bereshit touches on themes that are totally intrinsic and central to humanity as a whole. Once we get to Sefer Shmot, we're already moving to the more national uh, perspective. We're looking at it from a national perspective, the development of the nation. But in many ways, actually, Sefer Shmot parallels Sefer Bereshit in many of its thematic um, um, allusions. For example, the idea of maturity, of how does one become mature, how does one grow up. And in some senses, when we're looking at the Avot, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and we're speaking about this notion of maturity, what it means to live in the world, we see it in the, in the guise of individuality. But when we're looking at it in Sefer Shemot, and certainly in Sefer Bamidbar as well, we're looking at it from the guise, from the paradigm, from the perspective of the nation. How does the nation mature? Okay, Sefer Bamidbar is, will one day in another few years, whenever it is, we'll perhaps we'll study Sefer Bar. okay, and I've already taught it in the past, but that was many years ago, and, and my views have changed a lot since then, but still I have the basis there, so um, the Sefer Bar really um, touches on the idea of maturation. What does it mean to become a mature nation? What does it mean to be a nation that takes responsibility? What does it mean to move from slavery to autonomy, to freedom. And in many ways, that story, and that's why I said to you, when we're looking at it in Sefer Shmot, that's uh, Sefer Shmot and Sefer Bamidbar, that story is paralleled in many senses in the stories, in the individual stories of the Avot. And Yaakov is the classic story. Okay, And it's fascinating. I'm, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine um, on Shabbat at Kiddush, and he was, say, he, he was saying to me that one of the things he finds, never really thought about this, but it really related to a lot of what we've been saying, he said one of the things he finds fascinating about the character of Yaakov is if you think about it, Yaakov never moves, as in moves away or moves to a different place 
um, through his own decision making. Okay, if we think about the fact that he is sent away by Rivka and Yitzchak, okay, when he moves, um, when he leaves his home, then when he's with Lavan, Hashem has to come to him in a dream to say to him, move away. Okay, again, not he tries to, but he's not able to somehow take that step until God comes down and says to him, you need to go. Okay, even then going back to Egypt, his, the brothers, the, the sons, Yosef is the one that moves him. But what's fascinating, so in some senses, and it, it's very interesting, we compare him to Yitzchak. Remember, Yitzchak never moves. Okay, remember we spoke about the idea of Yitzchak being the person who is the second generation. He is the person who has to maintain the status quo. Funny enough, I was ta- I just related, I just remembered that. I was talking to my mother over Shabbat um, about, um, about her generation versus our generation. And she said that in many ways she sees herself as, they, or she sees suddenly her generation as the Yitzchak generation. Those that came, the generation that came after the Holocaust and went to England and America, they felt that they had to maintain that status quo. Their parents had survived, they'd set up a life, and their job was to kind of retain that life. And and, and and she says, and when I look at all of you, three out of four of her children live here in Israel. So you've moved, you've done the next step, you've taken it to the next step. But in some senses, Yaakov parallels Yitzhak in the sense that there is a passivity that still remains a part of who he is. And if you remember, we spoke about this notion of the two essences that resides within Yitzhak himself. In one sense, we have the Ishtam Yosheva Alim. Okay, we have the, um, the, the tent dweller, okay, the person who remains in the order, in the boundaries, okay, in the naivety, in the tmimut, right? In the very structured way that, uh, and in other senses, I'm going to use here a more generic or more classic term, within his comfort zone. We're all, we all want to remain in our comfort zone, in our tent, right? In the naivety, in the place where it's easy and we feel comfortable. That's Yaakov. And Yaakov, therefore, much of his life is trying to get back to the point, right? He's then, he becomes comfortable with Lavan. It's in some senses, it's easy to remain there rather than having to fight Lavan to leave. Okay, then he goes back to Eretz Yisrael, and yes, that's a challenge, and he has to face his past, and he has to face Esau, but again, he remains there, and he stays there. And then he's pulled back, and he has to go back to Egypt, or not back, he has to go to Egypt. And in Egypt, again, he's moving out his comfort zone, but it's not him that's moving. In a sense, he's forced to do that. The only time that he makes the active decision to move is in his death, okay? In his death, what does he say to his sons? Take my body and bury me with my forefathers. And in many senses, there's something there There's almost a tikkun. There's almost a sense of, and again, we... We will get to the end. We will get to the end of Yaakov this year, but we won't really get to the end of it because I highly doubt we're, we're going to get to the end of Parshat Vayechi. It's not going to happen, if I'm realistic. Okay. Um, so, so, so what I and I don't know what's happening next year. I am teaching here. Don't worry. Um, but I, um, you'll be my only class next year. Um, so I, um, I have to think how I'm going to do it because I may not continue separate year. I may bring something that is easier and prepared. <laughs> the energy didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like They wanted me to carry on stuff for Anyway, in any case, so which is why I'm saying you may have to hold off another few years to hear the end of Parsha Yechi, which is why, um, which is why I am going to try and bring some ideas in while we're learning it now as well, even though it won't be, you know, totally focused. So, and, and this is what I'm saying, the fact that only in his death, at the end of his life, in his death, that's in some senses a tikkun for his whole life. And what do I mean by that? And here I want to take another theme. So we looked at the theme of the order and chaos, but there's another theme that really runs through the whole of Yaakov's life. And it's a theme, by the way, that I've mentioned it before, but Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner in his book um, about Yaakov, he speaks about this idea throughout the book. And that is that much of Yaakov's life is a... Um, struggle to become an autonomous person. Okay, it's a struggle to become an autonomous person. What do I mean by that? 
What I mean by that is that when he leaves his parents' home, until he leaves his parents' home, he has very much led a life of, and I'm, I'm going to throw this word out, but it really is very much this, a life of coercion to an extent. Okay? We see him making some independent decisions, like the selling of the birthright, okay? but when it comes to that narrative of the stealing of the birthright, the person who's dictating the actions of Yaakov in that narrative is indeed Rifka. And that feeling of having to shed my um, everything that, or the causes of my action, okay, which by the way, again, this is, um, I don't know if you remember, but we read an essay that Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, speaks about enlightenment. We read it, I think, we read it last year, we read it at the beginning of this year, I think we read it in the last, when we did about Yaakov, I think. And he speaks about the idea of what is it to be an enlightened person. And one of the things he says is the idea of shedding in some sense, or going back to my source, right, of shedding all the externalities of coercion that have built up and to recognize what it is that my autonomous being is telling me to do. Now, there's a danger in that, and I'm aware that there's a danger in that. But what Yaakov, in some senses, he was the good boy. He was the boy. He was the innocent tent dweller. Okay? He was the one that was told what to do by his mother. He said yes. And he said yes. And he said yes. Hey, he did put up a little bit of a fight, right? But not to, not to the extent that, 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 that he refused, even though he might have felt that it was the wrong thing to do. And in many ways, every move that he makes, um, he is, there's a lot of his life that is still um, goes along the path of a kind of coercive, kind of allowing my circumstances to dictate my reality, okay? There are things he is independent, and it's fascinating, by the way, because the things that he is successful and independent in are dafka, the things that Yaakov, the bracha that Yaakov gives him, which is panasa. We see he's very successful, uh, sorry, Yitzhak, sorry, Yitzhak gives him which is, we see he's very successful in business with Lavan, and when he comes back to Eretz Yisrael, okay, there's a, there are elements in him that take autonomy, okay, marrying Rachel, okay, there's elements about him that do, that do kind of um, uh, live up, so to speak, to that leadership role, to that autonomous being, but there's always these two ten, this tension that exists between the Ish Tam Yoshev Olim and the Ish Sadeh. There's always a tension that sits there. And I really believe that that tension goes back to this idea of perhaps the coerced and the autonomous. And then there's the final. So there's the theme of the chaos and the order. There's the theme of the autonomous and the coerced. But there's also the theme of the whole and the fragmented. And this is what we began to touch on last time when we looked at the dream. In the dream itself, Okay, and in the whole 20 years that Yaakov goes and leaves Eretz Yisrael, we see that there is um, a lot of motifs, and especially in the dream, motifs about wholeness, fragmentation, okay, just the, the classic idea of the stones. He lies there, he puts 12 stones under his head, and somehow when he wakes up in the morning, we see he says, it talks about one stone. So obviously you have that beautiful midrash that we'll come to a bit later about the stones arguing to be under the head of Sadiq, and in the end, they're made into one stone, okay? But there, there's a much deeper idea here, and perhaps maybe that's what the midrash is also hinting to, and that is the idea that there's a part of Yaakov that is always in search of wholeness. That, and and, and again, what I, the reason why I'm saying this to you is um, in the sense of, you know, um, Chazal talk about the idea of all the actions of our forefathers are assigned for us in the, to, for, the, for the future generations. But I think what they're saying there is much deeper, and that is that all of our forefathers, the struggles that they went through, the, the, the existential experiences that they went through, they are all signs for us because we too are human beings just like they were human beings. We too go through the same struggles. And even more so, and this relates to the idea of Right? Do you see them as these saints or do you see them as human beings that had the same struggles as us but were able to overcome them and to speak to God on a level and connect with God on a level that perhaps we can only dream of? And the idea of Tanakh Begovei Naim, of seeing Tanakh on an eye level, is the idea that 
Yes, we can relate to them. We can relate to their struggles. And therefore, even more so, in the sense that they were able to connect to God on such a high level, we too have the potential to do that. And I think that's a really beautiful idea, especially when it comes to Yaakov, because there's an element of all of us in all of our lives, okay, that we speak, that we feel, okay, that, um, that a sense of fragmentation, <coughs> Okay, that there's a sense, I know, and perhaps it also relates, it's the same kind of idea of the chaos and the order, but in a much more existential fashion, okay? The idea of fragmentation, the idea of, of, um, of suffering, of, of feeling that there's parts of myself, perhaps some parts of myself that I don't want to accept. And I think Yaakov's whole life is a journey towards an acceptance of that act that he does. Okay, the act that he stands before his father and he lies, that he, he basically denies his brother of his birthright, is something that comes back to haunt him. And we saw it in the stories, it comes back to haunt him again and again and again. But I think that there's, and, and one of the classic senses to me is when he sees Rachel, and I spoke about this last time, when he sees Rachel and he cries, and the same words for his crying are the same words that are used to describe the crying of Aesop. Why at the, what should have been the happiest moment of Yaakov's life, where he feels he met, he's met his destiny, he's met the woman who's going to make him happy, he's going to give him joy he's finally found joy and he's finally found a sense of stability perhaps okay, of wholeness to an extent that's the moment where he recalls what he did to his brother and I think that comes very much from this idea um, of of, of a la- of the past catching up with me, of a sense of the part of myself that I don't want to accept always being there and not allowing myself to immerse in a full sense of joy. Okay, I mentioned last time Brene Brown, but I'll mention it again. She speaks very much about the idea of vulnerability, and she says the only way to experience pure joy okay, is to allow oneself to be open to other possibilities. What does she mean by that? When one, is, when one allows for vulnerability in one's life, Okay, when one looks at one's partner, looks at one's children, and says, "I'm so, I'm so lucky. This is so amazing. This moment is so overwhelmingly joyous." But not to go to the worst case scenario, not to all, not to go to, "Oh, but I'm such a bad person. I don't deserve it." Which is essentially exactly what's going through Yaakov's head at the time. And the Torah, in its wisdom and unbelievable ability to do so, tells us that. Because at that moment where he's, wow, I found the love of my life, but at that exact same moment saying, I'm not deserving of her because of what I did to my brother, okay, and therefore crying that cathartic cry, or maybe not even so cathartic, right? Pure joy comes when I say I accept who I am and I still am deserving of joy. My guilt, my shame doesn't deny me Because that's part of being a human being. We all do things that we are not proud of, but that doesn't mean we are not deserving of joy and of gratitude, okay? And that is really, I feel, what this wholeness and the fragmentation means. I was also speaking to my mother again over Shabanj. She was telling me that she was writing something to do with the idea of, of wholeness. What does it mean to be well, wellness and wholeness? And this idea also is that to be whole, to be well, right? Wellness comes from, she, she suddenly, it was her epiphany, comes from the idea of a well, right? And a well is something you dig down. It's not something that is all there on superficial level. It's something you really have to de- dig deep down, right? It's not, you can be ill, but you can be well, right? And you can be well, but you can't, you're not really well, right? Because the idea of the wellness is this idea of accepting my wholeness despite the fragmentation, okay? Despite the knowledge that there are moments, that are a crisis, there are things in my life that have happened that I am fragmented in a sense, okay? But accepting, okay, what Rabbi Nachman speaks about, there's nothing as whole as a broken heart, right? What Rabbi Nachman, what Rabbi Nachman was saying there is profound, Right? It's not just Stama saying there's nothing as hard. You know, people say it and they throw it out, but that saying has a depth to it that is so profound because what Rabbi Nachman's saying there is actually wellness comes when I've gone through a journey down that well to find the life spring, the source of life, which is water. Right? I've gone, da- I've gone down that well, I've had to de- dig deep and I've had to go through the darkness and I've had to go through those things and that's where it comes from. It comes from a moment of fragmentation. That's where wholeness arrives. 
That's true wholeness. That's moving out of the zone of the Ish Tam Yoshev HaOlim, becoming the Ish Sadeh, and then becoming Yisrael. And Yisrael means to struggle with man and God. Kisarita im anashim ve'im Elohim ve'tuchal. And you can. Right? That's what the Malach turns to Yaakov and says. I am calling you Yisrael because you struggled with God and you struggled with man and you, you will be able to. Right? You will succeed. You have the capabilities. That wholeness, that shalem, only comes after one's gone through that journey. Okay? Okay. So those are all the motifs that I think link, that we're going to be looking at, and then link all of these ideas together. I, I want to just finish with a quote that I read yesterday in Rav Soloveitchik. You don't have it in your sheets. Okay? But Rav Soloveitchik, at the beginning of Lonely Man of Faith, and Lonely Man of Faith, by the way, you know, we spoke about it two years ago, I think, when we learned Adam, when we learned about the creation story. And we, I bought you Rav Soloveitchik because you can't learn about chapter one and chapter two of Sefer Breshit without learning Lonely Man of Faith, okay? And there, Rav Soloveitchik speaks about the idea that chapter one and chapter two, which obviously the biblical critics went to town on, okay, that it's... Uh, that it's written by two different authors. And Ralph Soloveitchik in one sentence says, you know, there's not two different authors. He says, but the, it, to Adam 1 and Adam 2, these two different stories of creation are about the two different type typologies, okay? They're two different types of man, but they're two different types of man that reside within ourselves. And what I want to suggest is of all the avot, Yaakov represents the lonely man of faith at its highest level because Yaakov incorporates both Adam 1 and Adam too. He really is the incorporation. Now, we don't have time now and, uh, to go into what Adam 1 and Adam 2 is. Anyone who wasn't in my class and is interested, I'll, I can bring you the sheets and I'll, I can tell you and send you um, some stuff I've written about it. But just to, in one brief sentence, just to say that Adam 1 is essentially the person who um, his, the community is a majestic community. He goes out, he conquers the world. He is, he's the high-tech guru so to speak, okay, that's Adam 1, it's all about, it's all about the question of how, how can I conquer the world, how does this work, okay, or he's the, he's the, in the lab, he's in the science lab, right, how are we going to create a drug, how are we going to make our lives more dignified, and one needs another in that community because it's majestic, it makes me more dignified, but Adam 2 is not asking the why question or the how question, Adam 2 is asking the, sorry, he's not asking the how or the what question. Adam 2 is asking the why. Adam 2 is the existentialist. Adam 2 lives in a covenantal community. He is lowly. He is searching for someone to elevate himself out of his existential angst, his sense of mortality that we've spoken about a lot. Okay, the idea that I am going to die, but I'm dust of the earth. And by the way, Adam 1 is created in the image of God, and Adam 2 is created from the dust of the earth, okay? And that makes him recognize his own mortality. And in order to find an element of redemption, Adam too looks to what is called, what Rav Soloveitchik calls the covenantal community. And the covenantal community, by the way, in Adam 1, the wife is there simply to procreate. That's her job. In many ways, the other is seen as a means to an end in Adam 1. An it, an I, it in Buber's language. But Adam 2 doesn't see his wife as a means to an end. Adam sees her as a way of overcoming his existential loneliness, okay? Remember, he names all the animals, but he can't find an Ezek Negdor, okay? And then, he, and then the, the woman is created from his rib. She, he has to sacrifice to give us something. That's the existential community. That's the community that asks the why. That's the community that's lonely. Maybe that's also the community that is lives in a sense of, because when we live with our mortality, we also, in some senses, live with a sense of guilt, of shame, of who we are. How can I even exist? What am I worth? That's what Adam 2 asks. I'm dust of the earth. What am I worth? Why am I even existing? So you're living in a sense all the time of shame and guilt, and what am I, and who am I? That, to me, is, is Yaakov. And by the way, many, many years ago, when I learned Rav Soloveitchik, and I was... Um, the second time I learned him. I learned him once, I learned Lone Man of Faith once when I was 17. I thought I understood it, but I didn't. And then I learned it again quite a few years later. But the second time I learned it, 
Um, the first person that I thought of all the time as I was reading was Yaakov, because it's so obvious that Yaakov is, in many senses, the combination of this Adam 1 and Adam 2. His life is a constant struggle between the Ish Sadeh, right, the A sub part of him, um, the Bracha that Yaakov gives, that Yitzhak gives him thinking he's a sub, right? You should be multiplied, everyone should bow down to you, you're going to be great and fantastic and you're going to have lots of wealth, right? And you're going to succeed in everything you do, right? And the Brit Abraham, which is much more existential, it's not about, it's about covenantal living, it's about waiting, it's about knowing that maybe I'm not deserving but God's still given me a role, right? And that is the constant struggle that exists, it's the Ishtam Yoshev Olim, it's the constant struggle that exists in Yaakov himself. But what is so beautiful is that at the beginning of Lonely Man of Faith, by the way, Rav Salvech, it begins Lonely Man of Faith, beginning saying, I am lonely, that's how he starts it, it's very profound. And he speaks about the idea that even though he's surrounded by friends and acquaintances and family, and everything else he says but I'm lonely because and he talks about this idea of existential loneliness I, I feel alone because on the one hand I try to get close to God but I can't okay and this constant almost dialectic that he describes but he says something beautiful here he talks about the idea of um, the avot okay and essentially this is one of the first times we see in fact it is I think the first time we see a modern thinker okay a modern thinker because there are references in more archaic language, in the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? But but really a modern thinker that comes up and teaches us the idea of Tanakh Begov which is essentially the idea that the Avot are people who are like us, okay? And he says like this, the role of man, I'll read it slowly because you don't have it, the role of man of faith, whose religious experience is fraught with inner conflicts and incongruities, who oscillates between ecstasy and God's companionship, and despair when he feels abandoned by God, and who is torn asunder by the heightened contrast between self-appreciation and abnegation. And that's exactly what we're talking about here with, with Yaakov, right? Has been a difficult one since the times of Abraham and Moshe. It would be presumptuous of me to attempt to convert the passional and antinomic faith experience into a eudaimonic harmonious own while the biblical knights of faith lived heroically with this very tragic and paradoxical experience okay and what um what Ralph Soloveitchik is telling us here is that this experience of the lonely man of faith which he then goes on to describe is not just an experience of modern man okay it's an experience of being a human being, living with transcendence, okay? A human being that lives knowing that there is something above themselves, okay? And I think that is, it's beautiful how he describes it because what he's saying is that who am I to describe it to you, right, and to tell you how to live with it when our greatest forefathers were the ones who lived with that and heroically were able to maintain a sense of responsibility and living despite, in some ways, this tension that existed. Okay. We finished last time with Aviva Zornberg. We read, we finished reading her, right? Okay. Um, I'm going to leave the Rav Soloveitchik source of Avraham's wanderings. We're going to come back to I'm going to leave it for now. I want to begin by looking at um, the dream. Okay, we're going back, we've read the text of the dream, we understood the text of the dream, but in order to really um, understand all the themes that run through it, I want to begin with one with a very important parallel. And that is a parallel between the dream of Yaakov and the Tower of Bavel. Now, when I was going over this, preparing it, I was reading it, as I was reading it, I suddenly realized that there were so many parallels, hermeneutical parallels, between the, Torah, uh, the Tower of Babel and the dream of Yaakov. And as I did more and more research, I realized that obviously I wasn't the only one that saw that. And um, there are a few people who write about it. But very recently, in the last 10, 15 years, um, people have started writing about it. And what I want to do is to show you a comparison between the two. Now, I, I, did this, did I, bring, I didn't bring the actual text of the Tower of Babel, which is a chaval. So if anyone's got a if people, if people want to see it, there's loads of in here, and then pass a few around. Um, if not, I'll just, I'll read it, but it, it's kind of important to, 
Okay. Okay, so have a look at Bereshit Perak Yud Aleph. Perak Yud Aleph Pasuk Aleph. Okay? Now, hold on a second. I'm going to read you from the Tower of Babel. Okay, but. I want you also, and there, it was already a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to also remember what we read. In fact, I'm going to very briefly read again, just in Hebrew, I'm going to read again the dream of Yaakov, so that you have the dream fresh in your mind, and you have the Tower of Babel when we're reading it, okay? Um, so the dream is, it's on page one of two of your sheets, no, one of your sheets even. Um, is it? Page two of your sheets. Okay. Okay, that's the dream. Okay, think about, remember what we've read, and now I'm going to read you the story of which we, we which I know we did last year, but the story of, or maybe two years ago, I can't remember, the story of um, the Tower of Babel. Okay, so that, that, so we're in Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. Okay, chapter 11, 1. The land was all one language and uh, oneness of things, and it was when they traveled from this place, Kedem, okay? Um, okay, I always say it sounds like uh, one of those tongue twisters, right? But it's meant to sound like that. The whole point of this, and again, we, we, now we're not going into this because we did it in depth last time, okay? The whole point of this um, narrative is to show us, okay, the, the way that the text very cleverly shows us is a oneness of things and therefore it uses the same root words again and again and again and again the whole point is to show us what happens when uniformity is taken to its extreme okay when when unity becomes uniformity okay and that is where the problem that is the sole problem of, the, of what's going on here what happens in a world where I begun with unity but it's become so coercive because the goal has become more important than those that are dreaming or seeking the goal and therefore the coercion of the leaders who want to achieve the goal has taken away the individuality of the others and has become instead of a unified purpose okay, a, un a purpose of uniformity and uniformity as we know just from the last century okay, creates the most unimaginable terror. Okay, and this is essentially what the text is trying to tell us. Okay, and now we're gonna build a, a, a city with, and again the say, look at the words, the Migzal, the Rosho, 
B'shamayim. Now, this word, Rosho B'shamayim, only comes up twice in Bereshit, and these are the two times it comes up, okay? Okay, and again, even the idea of scattering amongst the earth, what we're going to see at the end is exactly the same motif that Hashem uses to describe how the seed of Yaakov is going to be spread out, okay? Okay, so again, um, okay, and then God comes down um, to see what the people have done. Okay, there's another place where God comes down as well. Okay, and that's in the story of Stom. Okay, um, and it's interesting why specifically in these two stories he has to, you know, the text that God sees everything. Why does he actually actually have to come down? Okay, there's a whole other discussion which we're not going to get into today, but it's interesting. Okay, um, specifically in these two cases, and he says this is one um, nation with one language, and this is what they decided to to do. And again, this can be read in as a statement, one people with one language, and this they decided to do, or it can be read as a question. This is one people that are united with one language, and this they've decided to do, okay? It could be read in both ways, but I think that the way in which it really should be read is, and this they've decided to do, meaning look at what you had, look how unified your goals were, look what the potential there was to achieve, and this is what you've decided to do? To, to create a towel to reach the heavens and make a name for yourselves, right? And then he says, <laughs> Yismu comes from the word, the, the modern Hebrew word for, which comes from Yismu is Yuzma. Yuzma is an initiative, right? Meaning what Hashem is saying is there's something very, very uh, positive about what the people are doing, okay? They have created this. I'm not going to stop them in their initiative, okay? But what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a diversified environment and see if they can continue doing what they're doing. Okay, so what does he do? He does like this. He says, I'm not going to stop them in their initiative, but but I'm going to come down them and mix up their languages so that they can't hear one for the other. Again, the Pnei Kol Haaretz reminds us of what uh, uh, he speaks to Yaakov about scattering his seed. Um, and, he, and then he... Um, spread them out uh, amongst the, uh, across the whole land. Only then, once the challenges have been set up, do they stop building. Why do they stop building? Not because God stops them, but rather because naturally they they realize that with those challenges they they just couldn't overcome them because because they didn't live in a world of diversity. They didn't know how to cope with diversity, with having to understand the other. When you live in a coercive system, and again, this should be taking us back to what we just spoke about. And that's why I began the class in this way, okay? When you live in a world in which a man or a woman is coerced, is is um, and I would say in today's world, even let's let's take a very very basic example. Okay, helicopter parenting in its extreme form. Everyone knows what helicopter parenting is. Helicopter parenting is when the parent is like a helicopter, okay, and hovers all the time, watching what's happening, do, and then coming in and trying to save them and doing all of these. Okay, helicopter parenting today. My girls are sitting here, so I have to be very careful what I say. Uh, <laughs> helicopter parenting is, a, is, is, I think today in Israel, is very um, common. Okay, if in Kitavav, on your WhatsApps, you still have parents that are saying, can you send me what the homework is? My son left it in school and I need to be able to sit with him and do it. I think, personally, Kitavav, unless the child has real issues or problems, is, heli- is a sense of helicopter parenting, okay? Whatever. It, it, it can be even much more extreme than that. Okay, it can be various other things, right? But what happens there is, okay, and that's, this is a very calm example, a very, um, what should we say, benign. common and benign. benign example, right? Meaning there's obviously much more extremes where there's real coercion, but we're not going to talk about those extremes. We're talking about, like, just some, in that kind of example, what happens is that the child doesn't begin to develop a sense of autonomy, 
okay? And when a child doesn't develop a sense of autonomy, and by the way, it can be as much as as keep telling your child to do something, and that's why I have to keep reminding myself not to tell my children to clean their rooms, because I just pray and hope that they'll autonomously clean on their own. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but it doesn't happen. Okay, so, um, so, so that sense of handing over, right? The and, and also knowing when to and when not to. That's also a, a whole other thing. But here I want to speak about the child, okay, or the individual. The individual that feels that they are constantly coerced or constantly being told what to do. And here again, taking it to Sefesh a slave mentality where I don't have to think for myself. I don't have to create my own narrative. I don't take or don't make autonomous decisions. I'm used to someone telling me all the time what to do. To create a sense of autonomy is one of the most difficult things, which is why with children you need to begin it young, okay? Even if it's small things, that they understand that they have an ability, okay, to make autonomous decisions, to do things on their own, it also gives a person a sense of self and self-worth, okay, and, and belief in oneself, right, that I don't need someone to do or tell me what to do all the time because they trust me to make my own decisions, okay, now, when these people who had been coerced, and I don't want to talk, I, we don't have time to talk about where we see it in the text, but it's very clear in the text that there's a sense of coercion that happens here, that people are forced to become a uniformity of people. When they are diversified, okay, they lose, they don't know how to act anymore. No one's telling them what to do. No one's commanding them what to build. Okay? No one's telling them what the goal in the project is. There's no one overseeing their work. And therefore, obviously, the whole thing falls apart. Okay? Um, I want, so, so already in your head, you should be building why it could be that this dream that comes to Yaakov at this specific time has so many parallels with the story of the Tower of Babel. Already we're beginning to see, okay? There are themes in the Tower of Babel about coercion and autonomy, okay? There's also themes in the Tower of Babel about whole and fragmented and many, many other chaos and order. And here, the chaos and order, again, is fascinating. Okay? Because in the Tower of Babel, and those of you that, took, uh, that did this with me in class, you'll remember I bought you um, an example from... Firstly, I bought you an example from, where, from, I think it was Max Weber that spoke about the idea of modern society and what it is and the order and the chaos and what happened. But I also bought you an example of the building of the Wall of China. Okay? Of the... I think, who was it that spoke? I think it was Immanuel Kant that maybe spoke about it, or some one of the philosophers that spoke about the idea of the building of the Wall of China and how in that ordered society it created, and they explained that it created a sense of order, people felt they were working towards the goal, till it got taken to the extreme, till it became forced, till it became slave labor, basically. Okay, And then everything began to fall apart. And this is always the question. Okay, and it's exactly what we read with Jordan Peterson, exactly what Jordan Peterson said. Order is good, okay, until what? Okay, until he says, um, order when pushed too far, when imbalanced, can also manifest itself destructively and terribly. It does so as the forced migration, the concentration camp, the soul devouring uniformity of the goose step. And that is what we see here, that order is not something, okay, that is, um, it can be something positive, it can be something that creates um, creativity and yuzma and innovation, but when taken too far, it's destructive. Now, why is that important for Yaakov? And this is what we're going to see. But before we look at all those bigger ideas, let's have a look at the actual comparison between the two texts. So go back, and I'm going to show you both the linguistic comparison, but also the thematic comparison between the two texts. Okay, look at the box you have in front of you in source number 10. Comparison of the Tower of Babel. Okay, so you've got Yaakov's dream. So you have the same idea. Okay, um, okay, remember, what did they build the Tower of Babel with? 
Evan. Evan is very important here, okay, because it's the first time in the history of humanity that we see that they construct brick, okay? They take Homer and they make it to Evan, okay? Um... Okay, um, okay, so both the shams, yeah, um, at the end, hold on, my is yours cut off a bit because mine's cut off a bit. Hold on, hold on one second, I think I've got it in mine. One minute, um, no. The Yelech Alta Bnei Kedem, Benis Ami Kedem. Okay, now we're going to talk about this because it's very important. We've spoken already about the fact that Yaakov goes against the journey of Avraham, right? Avraham moves towards Eretzel, Yaakov moves towards Haran. Okay, so literally doing the reverse journey to Yaakov, to uh, Avraham. Okay, but they're also the idea that they're both in the east, that both of these things occur in the same place. Okay. Um, Again, the same kind of words, the same idea, the same idea of scattering, of diversifying, of moving out. Okay, so there's a lot of linguistic parallels, but there's also a lot of thematic parallels, thematic motifs that parallel them. Number one, we've spoken about, they both talk about going east, okay? Um, Both are about the resistance to move away from a specific Place. Now, this is very, very interesting. Yaakov did not make the decision to move away from his home. And I suspect that if he hasn't been pushed out by Yitzhak and Rivka, he wouldn't have left. Okay, there's no way he would, even if he would have felt that threat from his brother, he would have hoped that his mother and father would have protected him. Okay, because that's what his mother's done her whole life. He's, she's protected him. And he doesn't, um, he wouldn't have necessarily done it on his own. Okay. He was reluctant to move away. The same with the people in the Tower of Babel. Hashem previously had told them, scatter yourselves amongst the earth. And what does the text tell us? The text is very specific in telling us that they all came together into this one specific place. Okay, Reluctance to move away from each other. Both are about the desire to remain united rather than dispersed, which is obviously. And here, why why is that with Yaakov? And here it goes back to what we read with Aviva Zornberg and what we see in Yaakov's life. Yaakov has a resistance or holds, as all of us do, as all all human beings do, wants to resist the notion of fragmentation. He wants himself to go back to being the Ishtam Yoshev Olim because it was simpler Okay, because it was far less complex, because it was the comfortable zone. And even we know it. We know how do we know this for sort for sure? Even if we can obviously take it from the text, but how do we know it for certain? Because when he battles with the Malach on the edge of Yabkuk, before he's about to go and face his past with Esav, and the Malach says to him, What's your name? And what does he respond? Yaakov. Okay, not Esav, not Yaakov. I want to go back to being Yaakov. That's who I want to be. And the Malach says, no, it's too far. You've gone too far. You're not Yaakov anymore. You're Yisrael, right? But what's fascinating about Yaakov is not like Abraham that his name changes and remains Yisrael from then on. What we see is that sometimes he's called Yisrael and sometimes he's called Yaakov. And that's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that the, the, the lesson, okay, the paradigm that Yaakov um, presents to us is living with a disintegrated self, but living in wholeness with a disintegrated self. And that is perhaps one of the key um, successes of being a human being. One of the key successes is to be able to look at my disintegrated self, to learn from the moments of fragmentation, to take the parts of me that don't sit comfortably, to integrate them into the parts that do, and to create a new person, and then to oscillate. That is the success story of Yaakov. But what Yaakov wants at that moment when he's left his family and he's running away and he's not able, right, to think past beyond survival at that particular moment, 
What does he want to do? He wants to go back to his, to his oneness, to his comfort zone, to his unitedness, to his Yoshev Tam Yoshev Olim. He doesn't want the dispersity. Okay? Both narratives, obviously the motifs are clear, right? Both narratives describe a ladder between heaven and earth, okay? A horizontal kind of structure. <coughs> um, we'll talk about the ziggurat structure, which we already spoke about, but it's, it's interesting that perhaps when he, after the dream, he creates this matseva, maybe is trying to parallel to himself imagery-wise what the dream was. A ziggurat structure, which they found in ancient, many, many ancient archae- um, archaeological digs, is kind of, you've got it on your page, the first page. It looks like this, right? It's a structure that isn't actually a ladder, so to speak, but it's like, it's different layers, and each layer builds on it. And most people say that the Tower of Babel looked like this. And if you look in many um, co- modern commentators who describe the idea of the dream of Yaakov, they suggest that the dream of Yaakov was also this kind of structure. Okay? Um, there's only two narratives in the Torah that use the language for Shamayim. Okay, One is here, and one is Yaakov's dream. Uh, one is Yaakov's dream, and one is the Tower of Babel. Both narratives not only mention the structure to be set up, um, the tower, house of God, but also the city, okay, which is also interesting. It's not just about the tower. Yaakov then names, obviously here we talk about the, the city of the, of the Tower of Baba, but also Yaakov names it Bet El. And again, Bet El is fascinating. We're going to look at it in depth because it becomes actually not such a positive place in the end. Okay, Both stories possess etymology. Okay, the re- I mean, both stories tell us not just what the city was called, but the reason why the city is named what it is. Okay, so Babel, Kibilal Sham, et, uh, well, exactly to say, Kibilal um, and also Bet El, he calls Bet El, if you remember, because, hold on, why does he call it Bet El? Someone remind me, because there he's going to set up the bite of Hashem when he comes back because of the nether that he makes, okay? Um, <clears throat> in Babel, the name is given by God. In Bet El, by the way, it sounds similar, right? In Bet El, the name is given by Yaakov, and that's also going to be significant. Okay, um, both stories end with a dispersion. Okay, Bavel, language and place. Yaakov, the promise of the sea being dispersed in all four directions. Okay, and again, um, what I really see here is this idea that one of the wishes for Hashem to Yaakov is the idea that unity and oneness can only come up to a certain point. That unity and oneness, when taken too extreme, okay, can lead to destruction. And Yaakov is someone that has to learn that lesson. We're going to come back to why that motif is so important. Paradigm is important. Abraham's story begins immediately after Babel, and Yaakov's story, be- story, so to speak, okay, as an individual agent, meaning not as someone who's been coerced by his mother and whatever else, but as an individual agent of his own destiny, begins immediately after the dream. So in many ways, he again, there's a massive parallel here between him and Abraham. Abraham comes immediately after the Tower of Babel narrative. Yaakov, as an individual agent comes immediately after um, this dream, okay? The narrative in the Babel story seems to reject the tower narrative. Um, it seems to reject the tower, and narrative in Yaakov's story seems to embrace the dream, okay? Um, in many ways, when Abraham comes, don't forget, Abraham comes as a tikkun, right, as a rectification, so, so to speak, for the Tower of Babel. What do I mean by that? When the people in Tower of Babel forcing everyone to work together, etc., etc., to the extent that, you know, that famous Midrash, why does the Midrash come tell us that one person fell, and they, oh, sorry, a person died building the thing and they didn't cry, but when a brick fell, they cried. Okay, what's the Midrash? And by the way, that's happened many, many, many times, even in Israel today, unfortunately. Okay, we see it. Okay, where the, work, where the, value, of li- the value of the project, okay, or the goal, trumps the value of human life. Okay, and Judaism is an absolute um, uh, uh, protest against that idea. Because in Judaism, nothing, except for the three things that we're not allowed to, but, that, but we'll, that, there's a reason why, but nothing trumps the value of life. Okay? And Judaism comes along and turns around to, uh, here, Abraham comes along, and he's Abraham Ha-Ivri. What's Abraham Ha-Ivri? The other. The other. Okay, Abraham comes, in Rabbi Sachs' words, Abraham comes to teach the world the dignity of difference. Okay, 
We are never, we are not a proselytizing religion. We don't go out to convert people. We don't want everyone to be the same. We don't want everyone to believe the same as us. Why? Because we are here to teach us the others the dignity of difference. We are here to teach them that everybody has a dignity in the faith in which they believe, in the people in which they are, in the difference of what they possess. And that is what Abraham came to be, because the world had got to the extent where they believed everyone had to be the same. So that's the first thing. Now, why is that important here? Why is this a lesson that, Abraham, that, that, that Yaakov needs to learn right now? Right? Why is that important for Yaakov in this, now, at this point in his life, okay, um, to learn that lesson? And I think... Um, we'll, we'll talk about it when we look more at the differences, but I think one of the greatest things is that the Tal Babel teaches us the dangers of losing individual, individuality, okay? what it is to be an individual. Okay? And what Yaakov comes to remind us, okay, and perhaps what Yaakov himself needs to learn, okay, is to be an individual. One, it, begins, it begins with becoming an autonomous agent. Okay, one cannot be an individual if one feels coercion all the time. Okay, in order to be an individual, in order to be a leader of a people, one has to be an individual. In order to be an individual, one has to be an autonomous agent. And in order to be an autonomous agent, one has to leave one's birthplace, so to speak, okay, like Abraham, Yaakov as well. Okay, one has to leave the tent of his existence, the narrow, almost parochial existence that he lived, Okay? And one has to also, and perhaps more importantly, to be an individual means to be able to integrate all the sides of who I am and to be aware of them. And that is the life journey that Yaakov takes. But the individuality of Yaakov begins with the dream, and the dream reminds us of the dangers of what happens when the individual is threatened. Okay, I'm going to leave it here for now because I want to talk for a few minutes about my father. But I want to just, um, I'm going to connect it. Also, one other thing we're going to learn now is, um, is about the idea of the Matseva. And I'll, I'll talk about it in a second. I want to just um, tell you the next time I'm going to come back and look at the differences and then look at the ideas around them and why it's important. I want to just take you to source number uh, It's one of the last sources on your, page, on your sheets. It's not got a number. I don't think I put a number on it, or maybe I did. Hold on. It's, 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 no, it says Matseva. It's the Mamash, the last source. Number 46. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so, the number one, I, I always I thought very much about this idea of why Yaakov creates, he creates Matseva three times in his life. Okay. The first time he creates it is when he here after the dream. After the dream, he he makes the matzeva. And forget, don't forget, a matzeva is not what the avot did until now. What did they do until now? A mizbeach, right? Which is very different, right? An altar to sacrifice something is very different to a matzeva. Matzeva is a stone, and you pour shemen on top of it or oil. It's a very different type of. Uh, I don't know whatever you call it, uh, uh, remembrance or whatever it is, okay? Three times he does it. Once here, the second when he comes back, and it's very interesting, he makes a Brit with Lavan, which we're going to look at because the motifs in the Brit that he makes with Lavan upon his return to Eretz Yisrael, the language is almost also identical to the Tower of Bavel for some reason, okay? And we're going to look at it. And I never noticed that before till I looked at it now, and I, it was like, uh, it was uncanny. And the third Matzevah he makes when? When Rachel dies, okay? Three Matzevot. And I want to, uh, uh, I, I actually used this idea when we did the Hakamat Matzevah for my father. Um, I spoke exactly about this idea of Yaakov and the three Matzevot that he, that he did. And I want to begin with a story about my father. My father was, I've spoken about him many times in my shiurim, Zechron Lebracha. He was a man who was full of life. He walked into a room, he just, he was full of life, his smile, his character, everything about him. Um, but one of the things that um, he stood for, he was very strict with us when we were growing up. Um, he really um, believed that you, what you need to listen, you need to do what you need to do. There are boundaries, there is order, right? And this is what needs to be done, right? And these are the rules. And there's, you know, no moving, no, no moving about it. Thank goodness we have my mother for the balance, right? Um, 
But that, that's what it was. And he really was, and I look back, and maybe as a child sometimes I thought he was too strict. And I thought, you know, but as I look, when I look back, but he was also, by the way, always the funnest. He was the strictest, but also the funnest father. Everyone, all our friends came to our house. Our house was the fun house. They knew, right? And as it was, I realized when I look back that this value system Okay, and the strength of his character. And I remember my friends used to come. He used to have. They used to have one of my friends at the time. Uh, whatever. They used to have arguments about all different things. My house was the place where you knew you came. And if you were standing up something my father didn't didn't believe in, he would argue with you. It doesn't matter what, right? And he really had. He believed in certain values, and there was no moving to the left or moving to the right. And that's the way he lived his life. And it actually, in many ways, I realize now when I when I look back at it, I realize that. That's what shaped us as human beings, that the ability to know that no matter what, he was unwavering. That's who he was. He was a solid, solid as a rock, right? That's literally, he was solid as a rock. And I remember so clearly that as a kid, one of my strongest memories is on a sun Sunday afternoon, which we don't have here, obviously. Um, on a Sunday afternoon, he would take us for a drive. In the, he worked on Sundays in the morning because he worked in the textile industry. So he worked in Brick Lane in the morning. He would come home and he would take all the kids when my mum had a bit of a rest. He would take us all in his car and he would say to us, drive wherever you want to go. You give me directions, we'll go wherever you want to go. And he would take us in the car and we would say, go right, go left, go right, go left. And in the back of our heads, we knew that we would always end up home. We knew it because somehow he would manipulate it because he would say, are you sure you want to go left? Are you sure? And he would know how to manipulate us to get us. And eventually we would always end up, end up back home. And to me, in so many ways, that represented who my father was. He really, really was somebody who, even when we were lost, even when we felt there was chaos, he was the order. He was the structure. He was the matzavah. He was the one that held it together. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, why is it that Jacob puts this matzavah? What does it, what is it? And I think that really, and this is what I wrote here, and I'm going to read it with you now, but I really believe that at those particular three moments in his life, they are the moments of the most uncertainty and the most chaos. And they are the moments when he needed that matzavah. He needed that permanent, stable structure that you literally touch, that you can feel, that is there to remind him that even in the most fragmented moments, even the most uncertain, even the most chaotic moments, okay, order does come back, right? And it might be, a, and it should be a different order, and it should be something different, and the integration of those experiences should, should come into that order, but it does return. So I'm going to read you just this part, and I mean, then I'll just finish with one more idea. Three times, this is something I wrote. This is what I wrote when I spoke. Um, three times Yaakov establishes the Matzevah. The first on his journey away from his childhood home, the second on his return, and the third when Rachel dies. The word Matzevah comes from the roots liyatsev, yatsiv, established, stable, sturdy, unwavering. It's clear that the establishing of a Matzevah at each stage of Yaakov's life signified a wish, a dream, a desire for that yitzivut, for that stability, in a place where he was feeling its very opposite. As he leaves the stability of his childhood home, and enters the unknown, the fragility and rupture that permeates his existence is palatable. At that moment, God comes to reassure him through a dream. Yaakov's response is to establish a matzeva, to create permanence and stability, rigidity and structure in a place where its absence is obvious. Again, when he returns to Be'el, he sets up a stone which he consecrates sets as a matzeva. And finally, tragically, his beloved Rachel dies in childbirth, on the way, in the middle of the journey, and again without wails or tears, without eulogy or words, the Pasuk simply tells us, The Al here, by the way, reminds us of what? Of Hashem Al. Remember, we said we didn't know whether Hashem was on the ladder or he was on Yaakov, and Shagal paints him as being on Yaakov. But that Al, to me, is very telling. Remember, we spoke about the Al, that when someone is like chaotic, having a fit, you stand on them to create stability. And that's really what it, I think the Pasuk is hinting to us here. Riddled with pain that could not be expressed, infiltrated with the agony of loss that fragments all structures and stability, Yaakov chooses to remind himself and us, the future generations of God's revelation, through the dream of the angels on earth, of his promise that he will be with us. And even though we may not feel it or believe it at that moment, 
There is a permanence and a structure. There is stability and eternity that exists somewhere at some level. The Matseva is a reminder of Yitzivut, that though so much is absent and broken, so too so much is still present and whole. And I, I, what I said when I spoke about the Matseva, I said that um, the legacy that my father left us is exactly the legacy that Yaakov sets up in the sense that he was that foundation. He was always that stone. He was always that person that created for us as children and even later on when we were dealing everything with my mum, that stability, that structure. Um, and I have to say that I wrote this a uh, year and a half ago before my mother went through her whole next set of treatments and everything else. And I, I wrote at the time, this is what we, we need him. We need him to help us. And I, I really believe that over the last year and a half, even though he isn't here present, uh, he has his, that, that stability and that structure has somehow come down to us in, in many different ways. Um, and finally, Rachel dies on, on her journey on her way. And she never reaches Eretz Israel. My father was an a, a very strong Zionist and all the Zionist values that we had we got from him and my mother at home and he loved Eretz Israel with a love that I can't describe and I always say he he didn't live in Eretz Israel, but he died here he died in Eretz Israel, and it wasn't meant that way it, that's just how it was and there was just something about the fact and he always used to say my soul feels different when I'm in Israel and there was just something about the way that that's also how it was meant to be he was meant to die here and he 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 died on his journey because he was too young but he did have the scut to return to Eretz Israel. and um, may his neshama have an aliyah thank you all Don't forget to return the tnachin to here for those that took.